the idea and what we fight for will continue our core will not be shaken because there are no prisons big enough for ideas they can't put our ideas behind bars so i think it's important to acknowledge that your movement and what you work for will always be bigger than you what we're fighting for precedes one person and to empower people in such a way that no matter who is attacked the good fight continues Greetings good people. I'm Kumi Naidu and you're listening to Power People and Planet, a series of candid conversations with activists and community leaders from around the world aiming to tackle the biggest questions of our time. What's race and inequality got to do with climate change? Is our current economic and political system even capable of restoring nature or tackling inequality? And how do we start to rebuild trust, even a new social contract between citizens and people in power. Today, we are speaking with Disha Ravi, a 22-year-old climate and environmental activist. She actively works with Fridays for the Future India. She's also passionate about ensuring that MAPA, a new acronym, most effective people and areas, MAPA voices are represented in climate conversations. She also enjoys reading and writing about land rights and environmental issues. I was lucky enough to meet Disha when she was a student in the Fossil Free University course. And so Disha, I'm so happy to have time to speak with you. But I just want to tell you that when we were running the course the second time, sadly at that time you were in prison and I was so moved by so many young people from around the world that held you in the hearts and were sending very very warm hugs and solidarity to you and i hope somehow you were able to sense that so many people around the world were with you uh, during your time of peril when you were in prison so thank you so much for being with us for this episode of the podcast so let's dive into it as a young person from the global south who's been on the front lines of the fight to avoid catastrophic climate change what is the current sentiment the feelings that young people in mainly the global south are feeling towards their governments uh, of these issues which do you think of the various issues that people are tackling which ones do you think uh, young people feel most strongly about um i think in general government have governments around the world have not been friendly towards criticism and um i think that's very concerning because they have lashed out in ways that are healthy um and what we need to really understand is criticism is a sign of a healthy democracy and i think governments around the world need to recognize that and acknowledge that uh what they need to do is work with young people work with those who are giving criticism to make uh this world a better place they need to acknowledge that and work on this because at the end of the day we're all working towards the same thing that is uh to make the planet better for each other to make um like the whole planet sustainable um and another thing is young people have been focusing on a wide range of issues uh even within like the environmental and climate justice space there are so many intersections that people focus on let's say uh gender justice we can talk about land rights we can talk about lgbtq plus rights and it's important because all of these are interconnected with each other and uh the youth acknowledge that and they've been working with uh, each other and other communities to bring forth 
justice that is redefined. Uh, and I think that's really amazing. If I can just uh, push you a little bit to see whether, if I give you a list of issues, right? Whether you have a strong feeling about whether which issue is most of concern to young people in India and in developing countries more generally. So would it be, let's say, for example, climate versus inequality, right? Uh, is it, uh, you know, state and police violence versus loss of nature? Do you have a sense or is this very fluid? Because obviously all of these things, as you correctly point out, are all connected. And, uh, and in that sense, it's hard to separate. But if you were to try to separate it, we have a feeling because, you know, many of our countries, uh, we find that our leaders say, oh, um, this issue about protecting the climate and so on is not really such a big issue for us. And, you know, it's more the, we are just about development and so on. I mean, thankfully that's changing, but I just want to get a sense of how young people are seeing things in places like India. Um, I think in India, one thing uh, everyone has been focused on is just the fight for their identity because that's been questioned so many times by the government. Uh, in general, the country has discriminated people based on their caste and religion for far too long. Uh, they've erased identities for a really long time and this has been an ongoing issue that people have continued to fight against. And I think that takes priority over, at least in my opinion, uh, over other issues. Um, yeah, which is really sad to see because a lot of uh, the problems we face, even in the climate crisis, stems from the fact that we consider some lives more important than the others. And it's the same situation here. I'm speaking to you from Africa, from South Africa, and I would say uh, it's exactly the same situation here. And if you were to ask young people, they'll probably respond in exactly the same way. I want to just reflect a bit on your dilemma that you faced uh, following your arrest in February of 2021. Uh, and as you know, you made international headlines and uh, there was support from around the world. I know that the case is still ongoing, so we cannot speak about your case specifically. But tell us, what are the current dynamics that exist between the government and youth activists? And what have been some of the tactics used by governments to discourage more involvement from people generally and particularly young people? Um, I don't think the government has welcomed activism or dissent at all. Um, in fact, the prime minister called us, um, called activists or those who go to protest as Andolan GVs. Andolan in Hindi means uh, campaigns or protests um, and GVs means life so or lives. So uh, it is a, it li quite literally translates to uh, people who protest for a living. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so he, he spun a very bad narrative around the whole thing. Um, activists in India get called um, anti-national, they get called terrorists, they get called Andolan GVs, because that's apparently a bad phrase now. Um, and a lot of them are incarcerated for the work they do. A lot of them uh, have to face police violence, especially if they belong to marginalized communities. Um, and especially if they're not urban activists, people, uh, indigenous people uh, are 
incarcerated or they're straight up killed without a second thought. And that doesn't even make it to the uh, main news. And that's really concerning. Uh, I was recently talking to an indigenous activist and uh, what they essentially told me was that in their uh, little village, they either get uh, they either go to jail for their uh, for fighting for their land, or they uh, end up getting killed. Um, so a lot of times, people prefer just going to jail because that's the safer option in that region. And it broke my heart to um, hear that because that's the state in the country. Uh, people are lynched to death, and what's worse is people who speak the truth about these, who bring the attention of what's going on to mainstream media, are also punished. Um, so it is a very concerning state. It's a police state. It's a state that is uh, censored very, very extensively. And I think uh, they've used technology to a very large extent to censor the, uh, this current issue. And like, the internet shutdowns around protest sites have been massive so that the word doesn't get out. Um, and we've seen a rise in internet shutdowns in just like the past five, seven years. And that's really, really concerning. You took me back a couple of decades by telling that story because when I was 24, my best friend, Lady Daily, was murdered and I got the news that he had been murdered by the regime. And then while the person giving me the news also said, which I hadn't known, that my brother had been arrested and was detained. And it was such a relief to hear that he was in prison because it was... It meant that he was still alive. And I, when you said that for some people being in prison is, is, is almost like a relief because then you're in the system and they can't just wipe you out. Uh, but can I ask, you know, are there any things from the experience from India uh, that you think might be helpful for young people elsewhere in the world generally, but especially young people who are fighting, you know, on climate for economic justice and so on, uh, from countries in the global south where often we have weaker democratic traditions? Um, yeah, definitely. I think one thing a lot of movements or even organizations end up focusing on is highlighting that one person or making one person their leader, right? And that's something we at FFF India have act actually actively broken down. Uh, we don't want one leader. We don't want one person uh, to lead the way on anything. We want the full community uh, to be working together for this. We want everyone to lead. We want to amplify everyone's voices. So the idea behind this is even if one person is um, attacked, the rest of us aren't. The idea and what we fight for will continue. Our core will not be shaken because there are no prisons big enough for ideas they can't put our ideas behind bars so i think it's important to acknowledge that your movement and what you work for will always be better than you and um, to know just how insignificant you are sometimes can be humbling and it's something that's absolutely necessary for everyone to understand that uh, what we're fighting for precedes one person and to empower people in such a way that no matter who is attacked the good fight continues that's brilliant and i fully fully agree with that. Uh, but let me ask you this. It seems to me from my knowledge of India and most places in the global south as well as you know everywhere in the world that what you just said is still a very radical concept. People still are locked into the idea of the leader 
uh, you know, and very much all, I think, I would say international NGOs and even big national NGOs and so on are still rooted in a very old idea of leadership. And, you know, Nelson Mandela used to, in his younger days especially, used to always talk about the critical importance of what he called collective leadership, right? Uh, but I think even collective leadership is, is not what you are talking about. I think you're talking about a very different approach of let's create leaderful movements, right, rather than leader-dependent movements, and let's try to build the movements in a way that the narrative of the movement is understood by the largest number of people so that the government can do whatever it wants, it will not be able to crush it. They can throw people in prison, they can run their propaganda, but if you get the message out and millions of people own that message and are promoting that message, then it's much more difficult for government to have the kind of uh, you know, controlling effect that it might like to do. But staying in India and talking about the tragedy, and you and I spoke, you and I both lost loved ones and uh, from COVID uh, and friends and family and so on. And yeah, in South Africa right now, I should tell you that we are in the midst of probably the worst period of COVID. And uh, we're looking at uh, more and more deaths, especially you know, given that we don't have vaccines in Africa on anywhere the scale that they have in Europe, for example, or the US. So India obviously has been struggling like many other countries uh, to manage the pandemic. And in recent months, uh, we understand, you know, more than 390,000 people have died now. Uh, and during this time, you and your organization, you know, Fridays for the Future India, seem to have shifted your focus from climate activism to COVID relief. Tell us more about how you see the intersections of the COVID relief work and climate activism? Uh, so we've shifted our focus to COVID relief uh, because it was a horrible situation in India. Um, we were at a place where someone, either someone we knew had COVID, uh, our loved ones had COVID, or someone died of COVID that we were very close to. Uh, and the number, they weren't doing enough tests. There weren't oxygen, sorry, uh, hospitals were running out of oxygen. Uh, there weren't enough beds and it was a horrible situation. People couldn't even get tested to be admitted to avail, um, you know, a treatment of any sort. So they didn't die from COVID. They didn't die from the lack of, uh, sorry, they died from the lack of preparation for the pandemic, for the second wave when it hit us. They, the system, the medical system, healthcare system was on its knees trying to help everyone. They never stopped trying. But there were literally, uh, if you go on, you can actually search it. There were, there was a court case where uh, there was an argument where the uh, where the hospital requested more oxygen to be supplied to them, and the court uh, basically said they'll hear the matter of oxygen shortage that is happening this week, next week. They postponed the hearing, and I think that was very concerning just to hear. Uh, and we shifted the focus because we wanted to prioritize our community and our people before anything else, because all crises are interconnected and. We're not, we're not going to be able to fight for the climate crisis if we don't survive this one. Um, so we had to prioritize uh, 
working with the community to help them get the resources that they needed. And at one point, Twitter became like uh, this COVID helpline where everyone would tweet out resources. We would call them and verify them to see if they're true. And we would then make a list and put that up on the internet. They would be re-verified because the resources were running out so fast that what we verified half an hour ago, like if there were beds available in a certain hospital half an hour ago, it wouldn't be available after half an hour. So we had to work around the clock to ensure that people got the best resources available. And our only concern is what about people who live in villages? What about people who don't have internet access? They can't use Twitter to um, help their loved ones because they don't have internet. And what was even scary was people who have blue ticks, people who are, who are in very high position, who are very rich, who normally have access to everything, were on Twitter asking for resources. They were like act, very famous actors, uh, people in huge places of authority who were begging for resources on Twitter. And I can't even begin to imagine what the situation would be like for a common, ordinary person if these people, if people who have resources at, the finger, at their fingertips are asking for them. Then what about the common man? So it was, uh, it was a very scary period and everyone, we were all scared because we lost so many loved ones and we continued working and we at, at, I think at one point we just became numb to the whole thing because we had so many people who'd put up like SOS calls on our Instagram or our Twitter and then the person would text half an hour later and be like you can take it down that person isn't there anymore and I think it broke our hearts and it happened way too often um, so I think at one point we just became numb to the whole thing and it's been a process of healing from that after that and we're just grateful uh, for whoever is alive and there with us. I, I feel so, so the same, you know, like uh, just being grateful for some of the close friends and comrades who were in hospital and, and they survived. Uh, uh, yeah. Let me, let me just ask you this. As a government in India, you feel shirked its responsibility to its citizens? No, I don't think they have. I feel like... Uh, They've become a machinery that only cares about good PR. So they put out lies. They lie at press conferences at how many, about how many people they're vaccinated, about how there was no oxygen shortage, and that was all a lie. And they lie about how there were uh, the deaths are misrepresented. And it's heartbreaking because they aren't prioritizing people at the end of the day. They're just trying to cover their tracks and um, some of them even had the audacity to go and on international platforms and say, uh, India handled the COVID crisis so well that uh, other countries should learn from us. What are they supposed to learn about how we ran out of oxygen and how hospitals were on Twitter tweeting about the lack of oxygen and how we postponed hearing about the lack of oxygen that, that happened this week to next week? Um, I don't know what they're supposed to learn because the whole thing was... Uh, terribly managed. They didn't die because of the pandemic. They died because a they died because the government didn't care enough about the people to organize uh, resources to help them out. You know, Disha, when the pandemic first started out, you had a lot of people saying globally, politicians especially in various countries, "Oh, you know, we're all in the same boat. You know, everybody's in the lockdown and and so on." But I think what you say so clearly and eloquently is that 
you know, the, 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 you even had policies saying, oh, we're all in the same boat, we're all in the same boat. Well, you know, we, we might all be uh, in same boats, but the boats are very different, right? We all might be in boats, but the boats are very different. Some of us got leaking boats, some of us got five-star boats where you can have every facility that you need and so on. Um, but it is very sad to see that, in fact, the pandemic, in a sense, really, really exposed the fact that there is such deep inequality and people are not impacted in the same way. I mean, if it, you know, it's not obviously a shocking thing to say, but I think the pandemic has really shown how deep inequality is. And so in that context, I just want to ask you, what does all of this mean for grassroots activists and everyday people in a place like India right now? I feel like we've become used to uh, being treated badly by the government. We've, uh, we're used to the attacks. We're used to uh, being censored. We're used to having uh, legal cases thrown on us. It, doesn't make it easy, it doesn't make it okay, um, but we've grown resilient to it because we don't have another option. We don't, it's not an option to not be resilient. Um, and I think that's where we are at the moment. That's very powerful. You don't have an option but to be resilient. And I think the climate crisis globally, that is the message, right? We don't have an option but to stand up and face it and to be as resilient as we can. Thank you for that. As a person, you know, from the global south, who is one of the leaders of an international youth-led climate movement, what has that experience been like for you? What are some of the differences you see in the climate movements in rich countries versus poor countries? You know, are folks in the south given the same amount of credibility and respect as people in rich countries? And, and also, how can we drive the climate movement from the global south? I think just from the whole narrative, you can take away a lot. The climate movement's narrative for the longest time has been focusing on our future, on just, uh, you know, fight for our future. But the truth is people in the global south are impacted every day by the climate crisis. They're impacted today by the climate crisis. So we're not just fighting for our future, we're fighting for our present. And I think the narrative needs to change because... Um, I think like Aisha used to say, uh, the cl climate justice is not just for the rich and the white. And I think that's something we really need to focus on and we need to have conversations on how we're going to incorporate solutions to make a difference now because it's a very, very urgent need to tackle the climate crisis because it's on our doorstep and it has been for a while. And uh, we've just been getting by. But there, there are a lot of people who didn't get by, who were impacted by the climate crisis, who lost lives and homes and their land to the climate crisis. And some of this is, in all of this uh, is induced by humans. And we know who they are. We know their addresses, but uh, we aren't doing enough to hold them accountable. And I think that needs to change. So the farmers' protests in India made headline news, as you can imagine, around the world, right? Uh, and, and it was actually very inspiring, you know, to see people who are generally seen as powerless, marginalized, you know, in remote places and so on, coming together and occupying space in the way that they did. Uh, what can we learn from these protests in relation to the relationship between 
people and the government, not just you know for people in developing countries, but for people around the world. What does the farmers protest uh, teach us? And if you're able to just, without mentioning anybody by name, if you can just give us a sense of where that struggle is right now, because I think a lot of people would like to know what's the state of play of that struggle of the farmers in India. Uh, the farmers' protest is still ongoing. They never left. Uh, and just the fact that they've been there for so many months is its sad almost because they're not supposed to be there. There's a pandemic going on. They're supposed to be home where uh, they can take care of each other and be safe. And instead, they have to leave their homes behind and live on highways and street just because the government refuses to listen to them. That is obviously concerning. And their resilience, uh, I don't want to say inspiring because it's, it breaks my heart that they have to do this because they don't have another option. They don't have enough, any anything else or anywhere else to go. Um, and I wish they didn't have to stay there for so long. And I wish a that we had a government that listened to its people because it breaks my heart that, you know, they're still going on, but uh, there's not much news about it. And that's concerning. And we need to keep talking about what's happening at the farmers' protest, about um, how people there are being impacted, because, again, a government refuses to listen, to listen to its people. So right now, what's your own sense, you know, about the struggle? Do you, do you see it continuing until there's a positive result for the farmers? The sense we had globally looking at it is that folks were as united as never seen before, as determined as never seen before. And in a sense, if you look at the dynamic between uh, the strength of the government who would stand or the strength of the farmers to continue to protest, is your, I mean, I can imagine you're, you're optimistically want the farmers to win, but do you have a sense of where it's going to lead and, and, and how much of strength that the government has to withstand the protests and how much of strength does the farmers have to continue the protest? Um, I don't know about the government because the government is threatened by the smallest of things nowadays. The government is threatened by any opinion that's different from theirs, that, even, that is even you know slightly different from theirs. So it doesn't take much to threaten them, honestly. Uh, but the farmers, on the other hand, they have been fighting for so long. Um, I believe that they will continue this fight because that's what they've also been telling the world. And um, their message is powerful because they want the three farmers that the government uh, from the government to be repelled. And they said they won't leave until it's repelled. And I think they'll stick through to that promise. And uh, that in itself is very powerful. Now, I want to take you back to one of the first things you said in our conversation, right? When you said... We are all fighting for the same thing. We all want to create a better world, uh, government and us as people. But, you know, a lot of what you say and a lot of what we see around the world is we see that governments have become very self-serving, right? That they are more catering for the 1% of the privileged people in their societies who they are politically connected to, economically connected to, and so on. So I want to just ask you flat out, do you think... Most governments in the world, at the national level, genuinely have the interests of the people at heart and they're just struggling because things are so complicated. You know, like oftentimes in the last year, we have been quite generous with our governments, you know, in the sense that 
um, we said, okay, we can't blame all governments for the pandemic. You know, they didn't create it. But of course, given where things are now, we can blame our governments for not having done enough to prevent the catastrophe that we are facing. But to put it bluntly, what is your sense from as a young people looking at the world, just not India only, but countries around you and globally, would you say that governments in the global south and north have the interests of people at heart today? Not understanding the words that come out of the mouth, but do their actions reflect that? Yeah, I think I uh, meant that we have the same interests that the government say they have, but they don't actually. <laughs> yeah, that's it. a so I, I, I rephrase that. I'd like to rephrase that. Um, <laughs> good. <laughs> um, I don't think, if I think if the government, governments around the world cared about uh, their people, I think they wouldn't have, uh, even like in the 1980s and the 60s, they wouldn't have hidden the fact that fossil fuel industries were causing climate crisis. They wouldn't continue to fund uh, fossil fuel industries now. They wouldn't continue to fund uh, industries and people who actively work uh, to destroy the planet. It's like, uh, you know, they're best friends and they refuse to not have each other's back. And that's not who they're supposed to be friends with. They're supposed to be friends with the people. But uh, they're busy lining their own pockets and they're busy um, showcasing to the world just how much they care when in reality they have been lynching people, incarcerating people, killing people behind uh, their backs. And I think that's just the state of the world, not just India, um, everywhere. Everyone has uh, skeletons in their closet that they don't talk about and they present a completely different image to the public. DJ, given just what you said now, right? Do you agree with those that think the world is much more divided than ever before over politics, religion, nationality, attitudes to race, gender, sexuality, trust in science and institutions, and so on? Do you share that view that actually many of our institutions at the national, regional, global level have actually run into a deep legitimacy crisis, a deep effectiveness and efficiency crisis. What's your sense of that challenge? Um, I think, like I said before, the world operates uh, on the belief that some lives are more important than the others. And this can differ from, you know, religion, caste, race, and just the general region they live in. Um, and yes, we are divided in, a, in, in that sense. But uh, I think I'll, I like to hold on to the hope that young people are doing better. They're unlearning what traditional values of division that was put into our heads. We're unlearning that. And we're working together with each other um, to make a more equitable uh, planet for each other. And I hope uh, and I'm hoping that it's not the division that brings us together, but the unity that brings us together, because that's what I've seen uh, even in, within the climate movement. I think we always have each other's back and uh, I think that's very powerful and uh, I think a lot of us realize that the battle we're fighting is for that of all humanity and uh, it's love for that human love for all humanity and that has united a lot of us and I hope uh, other people learn about this unity and uh, stress this unity. So if we were to say okay uh, we got two big problems, right? And, and you've been so clear in bringing up both those problems, which I fully agree with you, that on the one hand, 
we got this whole challenge, which we could call the repressive state apparatus, army, police, formal laws, and so on, right? On the other hand, which you have spoken very strongly about, is what you could call the ideological state apparatus. This is the framework for education, the framework for religion, the social norms and customs, and most importantly, the framework for media and uh, communications. So uh, some people say in a place like the United States, they don't need to use the repressive state apparatus that much because the ideological state apparatus got people completely under control there. If I ask you firstly, with regard to India, do you think the bigger challenge in India is actually the ideological state apparatus or do you think it's the repressive state apparatus? I know both, both are a challenge. But I think quite often activism focuses disproportionately on the repression side. But actually the thing that really controls us is the fact that those in power have succeeded in poisoning the minds of large numbers of people and giving them information, that uh, misinformation and disinformation that makes them sometimes take positions that are against their own interests. So if I were to ask you, do you, what do you think is a bigger problem? Is it the ideological state apparatus or the repressive state apparatus in India, but also elsewhere? I think the ideological one, because the repressive one is driven by the ideological one. They've been able to divide the country because of the ideological one, uh, because of caste, because of religion. And I think um, they've used uh, laws that are so behind our times and they're so they're, they're, they're literally india has a lot of laws that we've uh, adopted from the british rule and it's like the colonizers left never left uh and the oppressors never left the they've only changed the oppressors from white people to um upper caste people i mean even back then uh upper caste people were the oppressors uh, but, you know, before it was the coalition between the white people and the upper caste people, and now it's uh, just the upper caste people who uh, stay and who continue to use the same laws that the British used to silence a dissent back during the independence struggle, uh, like the sedition law. Uh, and they use the same laws today to suppress people. So I think the ideological one uh, is definitely horrible because that's what it's the premise for the repressive one. I fully agree with you. <laughs> but I should say, though, that uh, something that most people don't know, I have a bit of a repressive state apparatus issue in India because when I used to be the head of Greenpeace, we had done an action against something called ESA, right? Uh, which was destroying the forest in Madhya Pradesh, the Mahan forest, right? And, and so there were some strong statements made by the campaigners uh, against what the company was doing. They, you know, saying that this company was sucking the blood of the people in the, in the forest dwelling community and so on. And so what happened there was the company found an old British law, right, uh, and used it to get people arrested. And I still have an outstanding charge against me related to that. But if you were invited, say, by the Secretary General of the United Nations to say, okay, Disha, you have the power now to write a clause that we hope every country government will adopt. Which clause would that be to define, redefine the relationship between people and government? 
I mean, these laws already exist, but I don't think uh, they're very vaguely defined. And I think one law that, uh, or a clause that I would put in place is a law that would be against discriminating uh, people based on uh, who they decide to love, their caste, or which race they belong to. And just discrimination based on that, um, I think, is something we need to work on because uh, although we have laws for this, uh, we've not abided by them. We've made laws that uh, encourage people to uh, hate someone else from another religion. And we have laws that don't let you marry the person you love. We are against, we somehow get to have a say in who we love or who we uh, be with. Or And I think that's something we need to focus on and we need to stop discriminating people on where they come from and who they are and like I said stop feeling that some lives are more important than the other and I think if we were able to come to a conclusion that we're all equally um, important a lot of things would change um, in a lot of spheres and I think that's a change we desperately need. Now if you were to concentrate on young people specifically and if you were to think about what kind of clause or commitment we need from governments with regard to young people, what would that be? And, and just before you answer that, let me just say that the point you just made, the clause that you just made, I again fully support what you are saying. But I have come to hold the view now that the reasons governments take these positions is not even because governments are really seriously, you know, anti-Muslim or anti-people uh, who are uh, in the LGBTIQ community and so on. But I think it's done as a deviation tactic to get people to look in places which are not fundamental to some of the injustices that they're doing. So, for example, if you look at uh, the United States or Britain, Right, and you look at the Conservative Party in the UK, and you look at the Republican Party in the US. You know they are consciously going on about uh, attacking uh, the LGBTIQ community for 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 time, and and then suddenly, you know, when you look at which members of Congress, for example, in the United States, gets caught out, right, for engaging in activities and having relationships which are actually gay relationships and so on, you'll find it's disproportionately the people who publicly hold a view that says, oh, we are completely against it. So, so I think there is a very manipulative, uh, in many countries, I'm not saying in all countries it plays exactly the same, but sometimes the very people, I, I, you know, are taking those positions and saying those poisonous things that divides people in the way that you're saying, I think they do it for political control because divide and rule is again another thing that our leaders seem to have learned so well from their colonial masters and cannot get out of it. Do you have a response to that? I'm not so sure about that because I feel like a lot of crimes and uh, even state violence in India is driven by a hatred for um, another category or segment of people, be it on caste or be it on religion. Like we attack Muslims, we, we attack uh, we attack. Adivasis, we attack Dalits and Bahujans. And I can't help but feel like it's not just the people in power who do this, it's people, ordinary people who partake in this. And a lot of times it's just covered so well, both by the media and uh, like not in the sense like they push it under the rug 
they don't uh, give any attention to it and they hide it so well and it's a collaborative effort to hide it and i feel like you know at the i'm not sure at the end of the day if it's just political uh, if it's for political control i'm sure it definitely adds to their political control but and I'm, I'm i sometimes question if that's all of it well, thank you i mean i, I think you, uh, what you say makes total sense to me in the sense that uh we find that sometimes government will find one case of people who said something bad then they jump on it they pick it up and they make it bigger but even your answer to this question i believe underscores the most important uh lesson you bring to us here in a very clear way that we need to focus on all the things that are in the ideological state apparatus you know because i don't think you know like say on religious differences right we've got cases of communities in india in africa and other places where people have lived in harmony across religious boundaries for centuries it's not like uh you know there's no history of harmonious living across religious boundaries for example right and i think that if i look at a country like india it's clear that there's a particular political parties that to keep their political strength in power need to use that division and i'm not saying that them that governments or political parties necessarily created from scratch but they are using the whole ideological apparatus to promote these ideas because so long as people are divided on whatever ground right yeah. whether it's religion age Uh, and so on it's easier for our governments to control us so now to go to the concluding set of questions here right where do you feel hope lies you know where where do you get hope from what's inspiring you right now and what makes you feel that change is possible um uh, like you said just the fact that when i was in prison the youth movement and the climate movement rose up to uh you know support me and have my back and i think that was so enduring and it was it filled me with hope that regardless uh, of what happens to me i know there are people out there who will continue doing the work that i do and that filled me with hope the people and their very very pure love fills me with hope because our battle is like i said for that of the love of all humanity and i think just the fact that we refuse to stand back and just the fact that we fight it so militantly is what gives me hope the people uh and the youth give me hope because we are so amazing and we're so we're so wholesome honestly um, and it's lovely to be uh and I'm so grateful and I'm so honored to be part of such a community that is so loving and I'm always grateful for uh the movement the people's movement not just like uh, the climate movement in general just the people's movement like the lawyers the people the activists organizers everyone who come who they who they essentially come together to speak the truth and they're unhinged in that and these people give me hope well do you have a feeling that the moment we in history right now is one where we can actually get the big changes that we need because things have got so bad because you know as you said earlier our government say the same language that we say they say they concerned about climate change they say they concerned about inequality but their actions continue to make inequality worse make 
climate uh, catastrophe uh, ever closer to us. So, you know, for some people, you know, it's been very painful for many of us, obviously over the last year and a bit as a result of the pandemic, uh, we've seen people die, we've seen, you know, livelihoods lost, we've seen systems, you know, uh, even certain NGOs have collapsed during this period and so on. So at one level, it's, it's, it's a time of sadness, right? And, and, and you could say even pessimism. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people are saying, you know what, it needed to get so bad before we could actually create the context for people to rise up in sufficient numbers and say to our governments, enough is enough. We cannot deal with this. So uh, we cannot accept these levels of injustices anymore. So do you have a little bit of that sense as well that, you know, that maybe um, this is a moment difficult as it looks and sounds and feels, that we can muster the energy, the creativity, the numbers of people around the world to push for big structural and systemic change rather than, you know, small baby step changes, symbolic changes, greenwashing changes, which our governments and business appear to be very, very talented at. Um, I do feel like a lot of people have rose to the occasion of injustice just because it decided to wash up on their steps, a lot of people have decided to rise up and fight against it. And I feel like the more people uh, become aware of how bad the situation is, the more they will fight back. And we've seen that like with the COVID pandemic, everyone was helping each other out and there was a lot of kindness. And I do believe uh, people at their core are good people and they are kind. And we will uh, collectively rise to fight injustice in its root. Um, and I'm hoping that we come together in large numbers soon, even physically, because uh, now we can't. But I, I do I do feel very hopeful that everyone will come together as a collective to uh, work towards a better future. On that positive note, Disha, thank you so much for talking to me. And I'm sure we all who've listened to this have learned many lessons. I I'm deeply inspired by what you, your personal story, and I wish you all the best in all that you do. And please know there are thousands of people around the world and in India who are holding you in the heart and wishing you all the well with the challenges that lie ahead of you. Disha Ravi, thank you for speaking to Power People Planet. It was lovely being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Power, People and Planet. The show is produced in association with the Green Economy Coalition, one of the world's biggest global alliances fighting for green and fair economies. We would love your help to spread the message of this podcast and the conversations within, so please do follow us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.